The Counter, an NFL podcast from USA Today Sports. Hey, everybody, welcome to The Counter. We know the NFL schedule for the 2021 season. And I know my co-hosts, Stephen Ruiz and Charles McDonald, are beyond excited that we got to spend Wednesday night waiting for this. We already knew which teams were playing which teams. We just needed the order. And then the NFL went and leaked the first week, uh, the first week's schedule earlier in the day to, to stretch out the news even more. Uh, and then every team has these social media uh, staffs now that create these videos I mean, the NFL is just like they just turn everything into an extravaganza. It's our fault, too. Like the media well, of complains, yeah. complains about it, but we eat it up. Of course. And we do it. And we come. Yeah, I know we do it because if you told me that yesterday I was going to spend like six, seven <laughs> hours on damn schedule weeks. Like, I, I, dude, I was I was because there was a point because after we got the first one, which I think it was the Patriots. And I'm sitting there like dragging and dropping stuff in, uh, you know, the little server we use WordPress. I'm like, okay, I got to find these other schedules <laughs> because I can't just sit here and look for schedule leaks and try to piece it together. So, I, dude, I started texting people. I'm like, yo, you have a schedule <laughs> that I can use? Like, I swear to God, it won't leak it. I just need it so I can schedule some content. And I asked like six people and no one had one. He started doing real investigative journalism. <laughs> yeah, just to make my day a little bit easier. <laughs> yeah, it was like a dark cloud hanging over my day. Like, I was like, I hope it all leaks early so my day's over but and I don't have to wait till eight. But and it never happened. You know, it's funny. After we published all this stuff, I didn't engage in like any scheduled content. I didn't watch Same. any ESPN. I didn't click on, you know, someone's story about like the Falcons schedule or anything like that. I just found out they were playing the Bills this year like 30 minutes ago. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, it's funny because once the season starts, we probably will be like, oh, this week's a pretty good week or that week's. But like from this distance, it's just it's the NFL season. Like, of course, right. it's going to be exciting and interesting. <laughs> like, right. doesn't really matter how it unfolds. Uh, the one notable thing was that uh, the the Bucks and Patriots are playing, which at least will give us something to latch on. What is that? Week four? Yeah, week four. And Tom Brady came out today with a funny tweet about where he says it's like when your college friends meet your high school friends or something. Uh, I mean, is there a legitimate reason to be excited about what Bill Belichick might throw at Tom Brady in that game? Uh, just those two knowing each other so well. And as we've talked about on this podcast so much uh, that it, We've we keep going back to this interview uh, where I, it was Dean Pease, right, who said that that really like Belichick spent so much of his time teaching Tom Brady how to deal with defenses. Uh, so I'm like sort of fascinated about what Belichick has in reserve that he can maybe throw at Brady and and know that Brady's not going to be ready for. I I think it might be like uh, a peek at what Belichick thinks of Tom Brady as a right, quarterback, exactly. maybe. Like I don't know because with the Bucks defense or offense, they're so loaded that like you keep right. It doesn't really have it's anything not to do be with a Brady. fair game, <laughs> right? Like, it doesn't really have anything to do with Brady. It's really matching up with the receivers, but and they're not going to like load the box. Like say if it was like Blake Bortles and you just load the box, I don't think you were going to see anything like that or like even like how they would defend Patrick Mahomes. So I don't know. Maybe in theory, I think we have to wait and see. But that would be fun if he like totally just disrespected Brady's it's schematically somehow. I don't know how that would be. Right. Yeah. That would be interesting. Uh, we, uh, we're going to have a little bit more Brady 
talk in this episode, uh, an interview with Gotham Chopra, who is, uh, you know, has done many things on Tom Brady, Tom versus time. He's uh, done a couple other shorter things with him. And he is an executive producer on the ESPN. It is now a 10 part Tom Brady documentary uh, ESPN. It was originally supposed to be nine parts, but there was a uh, something in the, in the contract that if Brady went on to win another Super Bowl, that they would add an episode. And Tom Brady went on and won another Super Bowl. So now we're going to get 10 episodes, apparently, of Tom Brady documentary at some point later this year. So Gotham is going to update us on uh, that. He has some reflections on Brady and, and what uh, some interesting things to say about why Brady made the move to Tampa Bay and what it meant for him. Uh, and really, honestly, he sort of couched it. He and I talked on Wednesday, and he he sort of uh, presented it the same way that Brady sort of wanted to graduate from New England and go off and, and do his own thing. Uh, so we have that conversation, but we're going to focus here on something that uh, Charles just published actually a little bit ago on uh, Thursday afternoon about Kyle Pitts. Uh, and obviously we were – focused on where Kyle Pitts was going to go, you know, sort of thought that he was maybe the best, uh, you know, most unique talent in, in the first round, just a guy who uh, has hall of fame written all over him, that sort of talent. Uh, and then Charles also was looking at the number four spot, which is where he eventually went, but the the Falcons were sort of in a hinge in this draft. Cause it was, they are in such a precarious situation. They have uh, an aging quarterback and Matt Ryan, they have a new head coach who uh, has that sort of offensive uh, great thinker label on him. Uh, and so we were thinking this is, you know, Atlanta's going to tell us what they think about their own timeline here. Are they going to pick a quarterback to, to replace Matt Ryan, they could have had Justin Fields. They didn't do that. They could have traded back to get more draft capital to get into a longer rebuild. They didn't do that. They went with Kyle Pitts. So now we know uh, that's their plan and it's time to rough out, like, what is that going to look like and how is this going to work? And so Charles has written this piece today um, that you can find uh, at ForTheWinFTW.USAToday.com. And I'm sure we'll be tweeting it out. He'll tweet it from at Forverts. Uh, the Falcons could be unstoppable if Arthur Smith makes the right changes for Kyle Pitts. Uh, and, and so the operative phrase here is the right changes. Uh, so, Charles, why don't you take us through basically what you wanted to look at was how did Arthur Smith use tight ends uh, with the Tennessee Titans? And he did use them quite frequently. But Kyle Pitts is just a totally different dude than pretty much anyone else in the league when it comes to talking about tight ends right now. It's just the Falcons' offense is going to be unstoppable because the defense is probably still going to be straight. But uh, I mean, the they have no, they have like no edge rushers. Uh, secondary is very unproven. But you got Kyle Pitts, and I thought you know I was listening to uh, the Underground or Underdog Football Show with Josh Norris and Hayden Winks, and Hayden brought up a point that made me laugh. Where he was like, you know, he's like, I, I just kind of respect the Falcons have gone on a choice that is let's just have fun for the next couple of years before we send Matt Ryan and Julio off to sunset. Maybe it's not the smartest idea, but we're going to have a lot of fun and create some highlights and some memorable moments before those guys head out the door. And I think that Kyle Pitts, like when you watch him play, he's just such a, like a unique player. And 
I know like that term gets kind of overused, but there's literally like nothing this guy can't do on a football field, whether it's, you know, going down and making contested catches, uh, even in the short game, uh, you know, breaking in on slants and picking up yards after the catch, uh, playing out wide a receiver, like even pass blocking is something that he's, you know, pretty good at for someone his age and someone whose game is basically set around receiving. I mean, he's just a unicorn prospect in every sense of the word. And it's a different type of player that Arthur Smith has dealt with in the past because, you know, Johnny Smith, uh, who's now with the Patriots, uh, he was the Titans' main tight end over the past two seasons while Arthur Smith was the offensive coordinator. Like, he's a good player. I think he's someone that's going to make the Patriots' offense a lot better this season. But, I mean, (laughs) he ain't Kyle Pitts, bro. Uh, And... You know, I don't think that's any disrespect to John. It was just, you know, there's a reason why Pitts got picked fourth, and basically everyone was like, "Yeah, I get that. I get why you would take right. a tight end high." There's also a reason why, like, the Patriots felt like they needed to sign Hunter Henry in addition to Smith. Right. Uh, so the way that Arthur Smith kind of used Johnny Smith last year was it was weird because they almost use him as like an extension of the run game in some ways, which is which you don't right. really see too often from a tight end and that kind of speaks to the kind of you know special player that johnny is, where you know he's one of these tight ends and it's it's kind of funny i make this comparison but uh considering what team he's on now but it's kind of like aaron hernandez like when he would get the ball into his hands in short spaces and just the ball carrying ability like you just don't really see that uh from guys who don't play running back like for a guy his size for him to be as natural with the ball in his hand as he is uh it, it, it's pretty rare, but you know, on the flip side, you know, he's not someone that's going to go get a ton of contested catches downfield. You know, he he's made plays like that, but that's not going to be a part of his game. He, he's really going to be someone that lives on slants and screens and chips and releases and uh, get picking up yards after the catch, which is fine. But that's going to require Arthur Smith to kind of expand like this usage that he had on the tight end position, in Tennessee to what he has now with Kyle Pitts. Now, I think it's honestly, just from watching the plays that he dialed up in Tennessee, I think it's something that he's probably looking forward to because right. there are instances where, and I put the, I put one of these clips in the article, like, like he's not afraid to just throw a ball, to throw a ball to Johnny Smith. Like if he thinks he can beat a linebacker up the seam in the end zone, he's not afraid to like take those chances. But, you know, Johnny wasn't always great at them. And Kyle Pitts absolutely is. And I think it's telling that, you know, John, who's uh, average depth of target last year, I think was 5.8 yards uh, for the season. And, you know, Kyle Pitts at Florida, which is obviously a different game because it's college, uh, was at like 12.8. So, I mean, right. that's just a completely different type of player that you're talking about. And when you think about the matchups that you can bring, because I, I'm, I'm pretty certain that Julio's still going to be on the team for at least one more year. And just for this one year, like the matchups that you can create with Julio Jones, Calvin Ridley, Kyle Pitts, and you know, Stephen was making up a good point earlier in the chat. Like, you know, you can have these situations where Julio Jones is isolated on one side of the field, and then you have Kyle Pitts and Ridley on the side of the field. But the truth is, like, all three of those guys are so good that in any situation where any of them is isolated on one side of the field, that's going to give you man coverage problems. I mean, after Julio Jones got hurt, Last year, Calvin Ridley just stepped up and was named second team all pro. Uh, so you have two legitimate number one star wide receivers. You have this unicorn tight end prospect. And then you have this guy in Arthur Smith who is just not afraid to use tight ends in the passing game. Uh, he's probably going to have to be a lot more pass heavy in Atlanta than he was in Tennessee just because no Derrick Henry. And I mean, 
he's such a good play caller that Kyle Pitts could be like one of those rare tight ends that has a good rookie year. And I would, I would say that what makes it so hard to to defend, and I and you brought this up when you were uh, looking at Pitts's film in the piece. He can win like at every level of the field. Like he can right. win in the quick game. He can win deep. He can win up the seam. But but you could also say that about Julio Jones, and you could say that about right. Ridley. So you have three guys who can win at every level of the field and can be and line up anywhere basically. Like Ridley can get, line up outside or in the slot. Smith or not Smith Pitts can be in line, ISO in the slot, out wide. Julio Jones is an alien who can play anywhere. So like Arthur Smith can just have as much fun as he wants. And like, it's one of those things where I think you could put together a scheme that's like simple, but looks complicated from the outside looking in like the Sean McVay. Uh, I forget what term he used, but where you could put pits in one spot and have one run a route and then have Julio Jones run that same route from the same spot. And like defenses will never be able to catch on to anything or it's just going to be really fun. If they get this right, like the headline States, it's going to be, and I hesitate to throw this comparison out there, but it's going to be kind of similar to what we saw in 2016, where it was a pick your poison offense. Like the defense got to pick its poison, but they were going to die any, any way they right. decided to defend them. Right. And Pitt, and we're pretty sure that Pitts can do – I didn't realize how athletics Johnny Smith was until I watched some of the clips that, uh, that Chuck included here. You know, I thought of him a little bit more as like a reliable tight end. Uh, you know, I knew he was – like I, obviously the numbers show that he's picking up more yards uh, than, than you, you would expect maybe. But like they really had him moving. He was catching the ball on – slants and i mean he was not a guy who was just like running to a spot turning around and catching the ball right like and screen passes and right. screen, screen passes. passes and like they were doing a lot of and like pitts can like that's the thing about pitts is he can probably like if arthur smith doesn't make any changes like smith, uh, pitts will do awesome at that job too probably but the fact is like he needs to really expand those duties and really figure out how to make uh, how, to, how to just move him around and put defenses in conflict on, on every front. Yeah. I mean, it could be really an interesting offense. And just to add one, like one more point and bringing back the McVay comparison, when you watch the Titans offense, it's a lot of like condensed formations and like, like Corey, Corey uh, Davis was being put in spots where normally you might put a tight end. So maybe like, I think you could still have some of those same formations and just like plug pits into that role, that Corey Davis role. And he could absolutely do what Corey Davis did. Like he's that much of a freak. So yeah, it it just gives you, it gives you three interchangeable weapons that, you know, Julio, obviously future hall of famer. We know what he's about. Ridley. I think Smith himself has maybe not a lead receiver, but like just below that tier last year. Uh, And you have Pitts who has like literally all the upside in the world. I mean, like, and this is such a good situation for Pitts because he's only going to be 20 this year. I mean, 20-year-olds, like, that can be a little bit of a rough transition. But if you're the third option behind Julio Jones and Calvin Ridley, and, like, assuming those guys can stay healthy all year, like, he's – like, you can't double cover Julio and leave, you know, Pitts one-on-one or really one-on-one. You can't double cover Pitts and leave Julio. Like, it's just – the talent level of those three presents so many problems and – uh, just with the way that like the play calling the Arthur Smith using the red zone, especially like, I just think that this is all such a good fit between, you know, talent and a coach who 
has pretty much been, you know, I, I think at least pretty adaptive to his talent over in Tennessee. And we'll see how that uh, spreads out this year. But like, if you're a Falcons fan, which I am, like you got to be pretty excited at, at least how much fun the offense can be in the passing game. And, and that's going to free up stuff from the running game too. I mean, it's just like the possibilities just feel kind of endless when you look at those three guys. I would, I would argue that Pitts is like degree of difficulty might be easier this year, just considering. Oh yeah. One, he's playing with Matt Ryan, not Kyle Trask anymore. <laughs> Kyle Trask. And then right. like two, like you K- said, Kadarius Tony isn't the other option. <laughs> <laughs> right, right. You don't have like a guy doing like a, a, 20 point turn to run a quick out, but, uh, <laughs> but also like the attention paid to him, like Chuck said, like who right. Jones is, is, is like the scariest wide receiver in the NFL still, in my opinion. I mean, DK Metcalf, like physically imposing and skill talent wise, like DK Metcalf is probably the closest thing to him, but DK Metcalf is not Julio Jones. Bro. But I, so I, ever since these trade rumors have popped up, I've seen, and maybe this is just a way for people to rationalize the trade in their head. I like I've seen people say that Julio Jones is washed. I'm like, did you guys watch him last year before he got hurt? Dude, he was averaging almost 12 yards per target at age 32. Like, this yeah. is not this is not a normal receiver, and it like right, uh, uh, washed Julio Jones is still better than right, and, like, and like he's not and he's not even washed yet. Like, yeah. like you can still like we could still get like five more years of like good Julio play before he just becomes like a straight lemon that can't do anything anymore. Right. Uh, he had like and, a broken foot for like the first five years of career and no one noticed. <laughs> right. Yeah, he, he went, he went a four, three, four on a broken foot at the combine and broke like every athletic metric that there was out there. Like he's just, he's not one of us. Uh, and it's just, it's just kind of cool to see, you know, just this level of talent on one team, because I've, I've always been someone that like, I, I like seeing consolidations of talent, like in one yeah, area, like, like the chiefs are very fun for me to watch. Uh, and I think that, you know, j- if you can just put out like this dominant receiving core, you, you can just do so much of this. And I, I just think like, when you look at the drop back passing game with Arthur Smith and Ryan Tannehill in Tennessee, and you're like, okay, well he was doing this with, you know, AJ Brown, who's a stud. He's not Julio Jones, uh, Corey Davis, Good. He's not Calvin Ridley and uh, Johnny Smith. Good player, but he's not Kyle Pitts. Like you're getting better players, at least in my opinion. And if Matt Ryan can, you know, kind of turn back the clock a little bit, uh, maybe to some of his 2019 play. Like I don't see why this can't be like a major resurgence here for the for the Falcons offense. And and you're not you're. Uh, I mean, the defense. You you still think that this defense will hold this team back? I mean, Dean Pease is coming in. This is a guy who's made defenses work before. I know, but just look at their front seven, man. Like, it's Deion Jones, Grady Jarrett, uh, Foyer, who I think is a solid player, and then the rest is bad. Like, do you, like they're, they're starting edge rushers are going to be, like, Dante Fowler and Barkevius Mingo. Uh, <laughs> and then at cornerback, you got Adrian Terrell, who's, like, right. I, I think he's solid, but I think his ceiling is, like, you're in a better spot if he's, like, your number two cornerback. Yeah, right. Uh, and then, you know, you just got to pray that Isaiah Oliver can continue to remember how to play football from the slot. But, like, you're basically restarting at, second, at safety. You got one reliable corner to me. It's, it's going to be a long year on that side. The, the one thing I'll say about the pass rush is DMP, and maybe this is just, like, DMP's, like, blowing smoke or, like, hyping himself up. But he says he enjoys and he thinks he's better at 
designing pass rushes when he doesn't really have the talent because he gets more creative. Like he, in the example he uses when the Ravens won that Super Bowl with Flacco, and he, I think Suggs missed like eight games. Yeah, Ray Lewis is out, and he was someone else, and he was like, they still led the league in like quarterback hits. So maybe like that's like the that would be the saving grace is DMP's just like turning a bad defense into a decent defense. And if this offense is what we think it could be, like, I mean, Look, I, I don't see why this team can't finish second in the NFC South. And honestly, yeah. the first team is the first, the team that we expect to finish first is old as hell and has a 43 year old quarterback who could fall off the cliff at any minute. I know yeah. we've been like predicting this for I can't, years. I, I can't say <laughs> anything about Tom Brady as a Falcons fan. Yeah. They, they, had, they, they had a chance to beat him twice last year and they choked though. Times. That's right. That's right. And it was like from a defensive coordinator's perspective, looking at this roster, like what do, what's the meme with Belichick in the, in the, when he's game planning, he takes away the best thing an offense does. What is that with the Falcons? Like, what do you right. take away? It's yeah. crazy. And you know, to me, it's not like the same thing, but it kind of feels to me like when Kevin Durant joins the Warriors and not in like the sense that the Falcons are like this guaranteed title contender, but you know, you start off with the Warriors and you got Steph Curry and Clay Thompson and Draymond Green. And obviously that's a, a, a trio good enough to go 73 and nine and almost win the NBA championship before the goat comes back and uh, you know <laughs> does what he does. But when you get to a point where, Steph Curry is your second best player. Klay Thompson is your third best player. Draymond Green is your fourth best player. That's like when the the picture really starts to come together. So, you know, the Falcons are in a spot where now Hayden, like you have someone like Hayden Hurst, who I thought had a pretty decent year last year. He's your fourth best weapon. Or Russell Gage is your fourth or fifth best weapon. And he's like a legitimate wide receiver three on those teams. And like, I, I love like the picks like this where you add a top 10, like a top talent that ends up creating depth for the rest of your offense. And now you have this passing offense, which is as talented as like any team in the league. And we just got to see if really, to me, the only question mark that I have with the passing offense, because I'm, I'm a big believer in Arthur Smith's play calling is like, is the interior of that line going to hold up? Because, you know, they might be starting Matt Hennessy at center, who was quite honestly just terrible last year. Uh, Drew Dahlman uh, is a fourth-round rookie, and then Matt Gano is someone who who has limited reps in, in regular season. So that's the Achilles heel, but the rest of the passing offense just looks to be as good as it can be. So so let me ask you, uh, let's let's look a little bit more long-term. We know, like, this season is going to be – it's, it's going to be fun, and I'm sure we're going to be covering it and talking about it a lot. Uh, but as you wrote heading into the draft, like this was really about where is this Falcons franchise going overall? And they passed on Justin Fields. You're, you're huge on Justin Fields. Say Fields becomes, let's just say he becomes the 10th best quarterback in the league. Like that's just where he is, is for the next 10 years. He's the 10th best quarterback in the league. Uh, is there any way that Kyle Pitts is good enough to offset that, to make you as a Falcons fan think like, okay, we, we have pits because uh, they're going to lose Julio Jones at some point, right? Like yeah. they, they can't make this work. So it's going to be Ridley and Pitt. And then when you get to that situation and it's Ridley and, and Pitts, like that's a little bit easier to defend. And like, yes, you can bring in a, another quarterback and maybe it makes it easier on him, but it's not the same scenario, right? Like, and, and Justin Fields is there being a, a top 10 QB. Uh, is there any way that, that you, if Fields works out, that you won't regret that as a Falcons fan. Uh, I'll definitely have some <laughs> some angst in my heart if Fields 
does end up to be as good as we think he can be, or even if he just ends up being the tenth best quarterback, then uh, you know that that's probably a pretty big mistake by the Falcons to 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 not do that, uh, to not take that pick while he's there. Um, and you know, you like you see some people, you know, with analytics who are doing basically what a, a rookie tight end has to be in order, like what Kyle Pitts has to be in order to justify that draft slot is he has to be the best tight end in the league, the most high, the highest paid tight end in the league within, you know, when it's time for that second contract to come, which is, you know, definitely right. possible. I mean, right. I don't right. think that that's an outcome that would surprise anybody, but like that's the level he has to be to uh, justify that pick where, you know, maybe the bar for stardom is a little bit lower at quarterbacks because the 10th best quarterback is still right. someone that's I mean, it's way, value in the league. It's, it's way more likely that Pitts becomes the most high, the hi- highest paid tight end after his rookie contract than the Falcons find another quarterback some other way. Like, what is their path to finding Matt Ryan's replacement at this point? I don't even know if they're really thinking about it right now. Uh, like they're not going to tank, right? Like, this team's not... Yeah, they're clearly not tanking. They're going to they're gonna try this year. Uh, I, I just think that... You know, it, it's if Fields ends up being that good, it's definitely a mistake that's going to come back to bite them because one thing the Falcons have not had to deal with really in about, right? you know, 20, 25 years because, you know, because they even made a Super Bowl in the late 90s is bad quarterback play. I mean, you have Vic, uh, it started in the 2000s, and then he's gone for one year, and then the year after that in 2008, you get Matt Ryan. So, like, this is not a fan base that's used to just – you know, piddling around with terrible quarterback play. Like at the very least, it's going to be fun with Vic. So, uh, they, they they definitely need to find that guy. And if if Fields ends up good, you're going to regret that. <laughs> right. But you know, Kyle Pitts might be fun enough where fans don't care. Uh, yeah. And I, I think that that's also a very you know reasonable solution too. Like where you made the you made the wrong pick, but the pick ended up well enough that you still got people on your side. And I want to throw this out there because there's always people that are going to push up back against the hype. Like with a guy like Kyle Pitts, who I feel like is the least polarizing player from this last draft class. Like everyone was just like, Oh yeah, he's, like, <laughs> right. he's, he's amazing. Insane. Yeah. If he fails, it is not Kyle Pitts's fault. And I nope. would apply the same logic to Trevor Lawrence. It's like if someone gave me a helicopter the helicopter is still awesome. I just don't know how to fly a goddamn <laughs> helicopter. But if you gave that helicopter to a pilot, like that's a great asset to have. The guy has a, a helicopter now. So like if Pitts fails, it's, it's Arthur Smith's fault. I'm saying oh, or, or injuries. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Injuries are Smith's fault, but like there's, dude, there's just nothing he can't do on the field. And it, it's going to be fun to see like how good he can be right out the gate. So wait, do you guys think he'll be better than the other highly touted uh, first year tight end coming into yeah. the league this year? Yeah. <laughs> and you really do. He's he's like an 18 year old though. His 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 he's in such good shape. Who, who, I mean, is this the Oh, I see what you're saying. He's going to be catching passes from Trevor Lawrence. <laughs> not the throw. <laughs> no, he can't throw. I don't know where you read that. I wouldn't That's... bet against him doing anything out there. <laughs> it's a copycat league. They needed the, the Jaguars saw Taysom Hill's uh, success, I guess. They needed a tight end who can throw an ugly ball every now and then. By the way, Taysom Hill, I just want to say this. Go anyone who thinks Taysom Hill is like has a chance, like go watch him play. He's like just aesthetically, he's not a quarterback. I'm sorry. He's the one. <laughs> it's it's an ugly thing to watch. And anyone uh, pretending that there's a chance that this works out ought to be ashamed of themselves. I 
Charles, I think we should just let Steven go like stream of consciousness right now and just rip all the quarterbacks that he hates. Look, just, uh, any, we'll come back in 45 minutes and he'll still be going. Any Saint, any Saint slander, like you can keep that in the podcast. Yeah. <laughs> like, don't get me started. Like Michael Thomas, I feel like me and Chuck can just oh, God, that a lay of line on him. Get, get him out of here. I mean, <laughs> it will come back. He's coming back to earth this year, baby. <laughs> nice. He's yeah, he's got nobody thrown to him. Uh, all right, we're going to kick it over to Gotham Chopra now and find out about what he's got going on. All right, we have Gotham with us now. Gotham, how are you, man? How's everything been? I'm doing really well. Um, yeah, it's been super busy just as we sort of get back up and running. We had so many things going on last year that sort of got put on pause. And then we spent a lot of time developing new things and then everything came back all at once. Right. Um, so 2x the amount of work and but it, which is all great. Um, but yeah, and you know, we're just like doing everything slightly differently, which is um, appropriate, I think. So right. That's, that's, that's sort of the motto for all of us, right? Slightly yeah. differently. That's how everyone's yeah. uh, getting by. Yeah. Uh, you have, I want to get to the epic Tom Brady project you have in the works and, and how that yeah. was impacted by all this. But, but honestly, first, uh, I don't think we've spoken since the, since the Super Bowl. And Tom Brady is, you know, I think most people know a friend of yours, a business partner, a, uh, a muse, you know, someone that you've produced a lot of, uh, a, a lot of, very thoughtful work around just someone that you've really uh, invested a lot of time in and thinking. And he went and won a Super Bowl with another team. <laughs> uh, and uh, I was just wondering what that was like for you to see that, you know, because for, for all of us, it was surreal, I think, seeing that happen. But from uh, from your vantage point, what was that like? Well, I think surreal is <laughs> the right um, description. You know, it was it was it was really interesting. I spent a lot of time actually with Tom in the fall. Um, you know, I was going to a lot of those games with him. We've we've continued basically to capture content more informally. I would say um, uh, since started working together on Tom versus Time a couple of years ago. And again, it's it's really. I mean, it's for personal archive, it's for future projects, who knows? It's just in, you know, from my perspective, it is, um, it's a cultural event we're going through in real time. I mean, what Tom had already done and then this move and, you know, so it was just really fascinating to watch the, the year evolve. And it was all in the middle of COVID when I started going to games with him in September, it was, um, there's like no crowds. Right. And then over time, yeah, it just sort of built. And then I, I went to the Super Bowl in Tampa um, where the stadium was, I think it was a quarter capacity or something like that. So, look, I was really happy for Tom. And I think, you know, the, that move meant a lot to him personally. I think it was just, you know, it was a big life decision for him more than just a football decision. So I was really happy for him. Um I will say I'm a diehard Patriots fan, have been my whole life. So, you know, I was happy for Tom, but I didn't feel as emotionally invested in the Bucks, you know, to be honest. So it was, you know, I was, I wouldn't say I was conflicted because it wasn't like, you know, it wasn't like the Patriots were in the Super Bowl, but like, you know, it was just, it was different. It was very different, you know, like watching and witnessing that than prior years. But, um, 
look, the journey continues. The thing about Tom is like, you know, it's like literally the game is over and there's like a little celebration. And then he's talking about like what they have to do for next year. And, you know, now I think it's public. He had like a knee injury. He had to have his knee, you know, fixed. And he was just always already thinking about his rehab. And, you know, it's just the way he ticks. And it's, so there's not much, even now, there's just, it's not much. Tom's not a guy who likes to reflect very much, be it last year or the last 20 years. Uh, there will be a time for that. But I think right now he's just like, okay, well, it's the eighth one. That's the most important to him. So pretty fascinating guy. Yeah. I, I, I want to get to that because I, I feel like that's sort of the crux of your challenge with uh, man in the arena. But, yeah. but I, I wondered what you thought of him letting loose a little bit, right? Like throwing the trophy, uh, yeah. staggering around like that is, we're not used to him even giving us that much, right? He is such a focused person uh, that, that seeing that, you know, I think for a lot of us, it, it you know, humanized him a little bit, just, just yeah. him letting loose and, and uh, feeling free to do that in that moment. Well, look, uh, the world at large is not using him, but those of us who have been around him for a couple of years, I mean, look, and I think Tom will be the first, he's a human being. There's this idea because of, you know, and, and we participated in it with Tom versus time, but like, you know, maybe because of the TV 12 and the pliability and the, right. you know, avocado ice cream and the smoothies. And the, you know, <laughs> not eating know, strawberries. Like, yeah, like exactly. Like there's this idea that he's a robot. Right. He's not. And, you know, so much of the move from New England uh, to Tampa, you know, like I said, it wasn't as much a football decision as much as it was like a personal decision. Mm -hmm. It wasn't steeped in any, you know, again, there's all sorts of uh, discussion around this and punditry about this, about relationships. It's just a guy who 20 years into his career wants to sort of, you know, like see what he's capable of. And, and, and I think that was a big decision for him. And, you know, the success, I mean, look, I think if you honestly ask Tom, like it probably came sooner than he anticipated. Um, but, uh, so there was a lot of just the joy like that came from that victory. Um, but, you know, so I, I don't know. It wasn't that surprising to me. Mm-hmm. And by the way, it was like with 48 hours. And then he, like I said, <laughs> I think he was off and focused on the next one. Right. He, I think he had surgery on his knee, like within a week of that, you know? Right. Um, and uh, because he wanted to make sure that he could have as normal a off season in terms of his rehab and training as possible. Yeah. Uh, where do things stand with man in the arena? This is the, it's a nine part documentary. It was, it was announced in the wake of the success of the last dance. Uh, and so it's sort of been thought of, uh, similarly, right. It's sort of like, Oh, they're doing that for Tom Brady now. But, but as you mentioned, Tom Brady is not, uh, going to look sentimentally back at that. He is not yeah. that sort of reflective person. Uh, so I, th- I think by nature, this is going to be a different sort of project. Uh, yeah. So where are you in the process right now? And and how have you approached it? What, what sort of yeah. t- story are you trying to tell? I can tell you it is now a 10-part okay. story. <laughs> <laughs> it is anchored around Tom Brady's, you know, Super Bowls. Okay. And uh, so obviously there was an option that was exercised. Right. Um <laughs> Very, you know, soon after the Super Bowl. Um, 
So look, it, it was one of those projects that kind of got put on pause a little bit as we tried to figure out, you know, production in the time of COVID. Right. Um, but then it has roared back over the last few months. And um, it, creatively, you know, yes, it can be a challenge. I would say, Tom, it's easier to talk ironically about, you know, call it Patriots 1.0 with him, like going back to, you know, 2001, 2003, 2004, under you know the 18 and one season i think there's like so much space between uh now and then and then but and then there's a creative challenge right around like the more recent call it the last three or four super bowls because they're so fresh in our minds you know even just as as viewers like they were covered um there's social media they were talked about their endless press conference and tom's a big celebrity and stuff like that so it's been an interesting process as we sort of get back into those you know as far as like the um the last dance of it all look this is not the i don't know if the guys at last dance would describe that as the definitive michael jordan documentary likewise i would not describe this as the definitive tom brady documentary i think what we have sort of conceived it as is like these 10 iconic moments in the history of football and in, certainly in Tom's life, what did he learn from them? So they're, they're sort of episodic, you know, it's, it's not that sort of saga that I would say, you know, a last dance necessarily is. Um, so it's been really fun, but you know, they, they, we call these things non-script for a reason. We've learned a lot as we've done them. We sort of learned early on, oh, in order to under, understand the Super Bowl, you have to understand the season in which the Super Bowl happened. And in order to understand the season, you kind of have to understand, you know, the the context of that season. You know, what's the heads and tails of that season? Mm -hmm. Um, So it's been fun. It's been a lot of fun. I think Tom's enjoyed it, like just in terms of, you know, one of the things he says a lot is like, you don't, when you're in it, you don't really realize like how long the journey has been. But, you know, forced by me (laughs) to be a little bit reflective, (laughs) it's pretty incredible like right like to track this thing right and so yeah it's been a lot of fun um i think look the last dance con- you know analog is probably just in terms of the spectacle of it it was a big project for espn mm-hmm. this is a big project for espn plus and you know my assumption i i know what we're doing on the production side my assumption is they'll do you know similar on the promotional side and it's it's tom brady so it's it'll get a lot of attention so i'd say that's probably where the the last dance but stylistically it's it's pretty different uh it it helped me to think to to realize uh, as you were saying how long tom brady has been a factor uh, you know this huge presence in sports fans lives based on uh listening to crushed the the podcast that you guys did uh, on the 98 home run chase, which feels like it was forever ago, <laughs> but, but actually happened just a little bit before Tom Brady emerged uh, as the character he is. Uh, and I was wondering, you know, th- you did this through your religion of sports uh, o- overarching brand. And this, uh, I-, I wondered, you know, this was like a-, a moment of lost faith in many ways. You know, I, I look back yeah. at that at that summer and still, and I, I, I don't think I've ever come to love baseball the way I did prior to that. Uh, you know, I, I think that I've been 
permanently burned by what happened. Uh, yeah. So I wondered what you went through uh, working on this project, listening to Joan uh, discuss it. I mean, it's, it's a really beautiful piece of work, so personal to her and, and her journey uh, in, in going through it and investigating it and figuring out what actually happened. How did it hit you? Yeah, no, look, I love your description of it and just your experience with it, because um, that's certainly what we've been seeking is to sort of um, make it personal, not just through Joan, but he, almost through every listener who, you know, has had a relationship with this sport. And I, I remember early on, we talked a lot, you know, baseball was once America's, when you talk about sports as a religion, mm-hmm. I mean, it was it was the Catholic church. It was like, you know, it was the Vatican. Mm-hmm. Um, it was the once great American religion. We called it America's pastime. What happened to that? Because baseball is today is certainly not what it once was. And so I think when you look back at that story, um, you know, this was a moment um, where it started to, to sort of come apart and it's look, religions rise and fall, empires rise and fall. Right. I think it's interesting what we're going through right now in baseball. Um, it, it feels to me, and this might just be because I'm a Red Sox fan and we're having a surprisingly good <laughs> season. Um, there's some sort of renaissance or resurrection there, going on. There is. I, I agree with you. It's, it's sort of unexpected. It's just people, yeah. the young players that you can fall in love with again. Totally. But yeah, I think that look, it's, you know, that was what was great about like baseball you know, grew, I don't know, like got too big for itself. It stopped sort of monitoring itself. And, you know, this, cause it wasn't like, you know, this thing just happened. MLB celebrated it. Right, MLB right. marketed it, pitched it, all of that sort of stuff. But, you know, we learned from our mistakes and it seems like, yeah, we're going through it and um, we're, we're going through some sort of renaissance, but I don't know. I just, as much as a baseball fan, as much as a sports fan, you know, our mission has always been to at religion and sports is to tell stories beyond sports. Like, okay, you know, sports are bigger than just, you know, scoreboards and statistics and sabermetrics and stuff like that. Uh, and so I think this podcast really achieves that. And again, most of the credit goes to Joan. I mean, Joan, what I loved about, there was a version of crush that was just like the objective storytelling about what happened, mm-hmm. you know, in this era of like the home run chase. But, you know, I think what really sort of made it resonate for all of us was, oh, Joan was 10 years old, you know, in St. Louis following Mark McGuire and the Cardinals um, when this all happened. And now this is her journey back trying to understand, yeah, like, you know, not only what happened in the sport, but how that impacted her. I mean, she went on sort of the catalyst for her becoming a sports reporter. And so now she's unpacking that and it just felt so intimate um, that it made it because honestly, like I remember early on when we talked about it, it's like, okay, like, is anybody really going to care if we tell a story about like the home run chase in 1997, uh, 98, like probably not. But when you tell it through the personal lens of this reporter for whom it was really a seminal moment now it feels bigger right yeah and and delving back in i think for so many of us i mean it really it ruled that summer in in just a yeah. uh, a way that I, like i'm not even sure a single story could do that now uh it just you know we were not you know there was not twitter there was it was a little bit of a, a smaller media environment where whatever uh led sports center and and sort of 
uh, every columnist in the country was talking about, we were still in that era where that you could have one story ruling everything. And uh, really, it was sort of toward the end of that era. And uh, it was just it was everything that summer. You know, it really defined the summer. And then as the news of the steroid use trickled out, it's like we all sort of canceled that summer in our memories. You know, we we yeah. we we pushed it away. And I'm not sure how many of us went back and delved in. And this is a chance to do that and figure out, like, wait, let's let's really think about uh, what happened there and why it happened and how it impacted these people. Uh, and so, you know, it's just it's a, a, a really uh, moving journey to go through that and, and have no Joan is the, the one to to sort of guide you on that. Uh, I wanted to ask you about your next uh, podcast uh, project. And, and this is uh, also looking back at, at some some things from sports past that maybe a lot of us have forgotten about. And this is called Lost in Sports. So, tell me about this idea and what, what you're looking for here. Yes, Lost in Sports. I'm really excited about this new podcast launching very soon. I'm not sure the exact <laughs> date. But, um, um, uh, you know, basically, look, as sports fans, we all have these memories somewhat, you know, similar to the, the crush, what we just talked about, but like, Oh yeah. Like that thing that happened, whatever happened to the Hartford whalers, whatever happened to end one, you know, the street, uh, basketball, the hype videos, whatever happened to that. If you're a Cleveland Browns fan, like masters of the gridiron video that was made. And so we basically, you know, we have this, um, great, another great, um, reporter, a former Sports Illustrated writer named Ben Baskin, um, who's sort of like the Indiana Jones of this world. And, you know, he goes on these journeys to sort of figure out, like, yeah, what happened to that thing? Yeah. And tell the story first of how it came and then where it went. Inclu- including Evander Hill. Holyfield's ear. Yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah. Evander Holyfield. Right. Mike Tyson, the <laughs> perpetrator of that. But, yeah, it's these really, like, fun just – you know, plunge into a singular story around an iconic event that sort of faded into the annals of sports history. And so it's fun and look, it's fun on the surface, but it goes back to that. Like, what's the bigger story here? And it's like these, these mythologies If if sports is a religion, you know, all religion is religion is steeped in mythology. And so what is this thing that happened? What did we learn from it? And, um, you know, it's, it's a really fun series. And, and I think it's, you know, I think people would really be interested in, yeah. in it. And uh, Ben, you know, he's, he's got a great personality. He's very sort of, uh, yeah, he's got that Indiana Jones, like curiosity, um, and, and adventurous spirit. So, um, it's going to be fun. I, I'm looking forward to the episode on NCAA football 14. So this is the last college oh, yeah. football game. And there is yeah. an entire culture that has risen around people continuing to play that game, uh, you know, reformulating it, which, which team can you, can you lead to a dynasty? Yeah. And, you know, it's, it's its own entire world that sort of popped up because, you know, of the NCAA not wanting to let players get any money, yeah. you know, that this is this. I, I have a 13 year old. Yeah. I have a 13 year old son who's like, you know, obsessed with it. Wow, <laughs> like, amazing. You know, it's like this, you know, it's like these relics in, yeah. in sports mythology. And uh, yeah, so it's really been fun to sort of, and actually it's, you know, once we're really excited about this because it's, it's sort of a franchise. And like, I think once you, you build it, like, 
there's sort of like this limit as right. we start to talk about it, people are like, Oh yeah, you know what? Like whatever <laughs> happened to this other thing. And you know, like it's, it's sort of a bottomless pit. So um, yeah, we're excited about it. Great. Well, is there anything else you, you have coming up that we should know about? I mean, we're it's a, a lot already that we've discussed to look forward to but yeah. anything else. Uh, I think so. I mean, I think the one thing I'm actually really excited about, I feel like it's been publicly announced is um, the series we're doing with Simone Biles um, for Facebook. Uh, Simone, it's called Simone versus herself. And it's really, you know, not unlike what we did with Tom Brady a couple years ago. And then Steph Curry after that, uh, this versus series, it's about Simone's Olympic quest, which right. again, you know, was supposed to happen last year, got like the whole Olympics got moved a year. So our project got moved a year. Um, but she's incredible, you know, when you talk about greatest of all time. Yeah. And she and just like elite athletes. I mean, she's sort of in a class by herself, to be honest. Right. And um she's she's pretty incredible. So like tracking her tracking her training, tracking her life through a pandemic like all of ours and how she's sort of maintained both her physical but also mental well being. Um, and how she's now focused on, you know, cementing her status at the Tokyo Games. I think it's going to be a pretty amazing story. She's a she's an amazing character. So I've learned a lot. You know, for me, like telling football and basketball stories is somewhat instinctive since I've been a fan right, my right. whole life. Um, but this is a whole new thing, and it's been fun. Yeah, and the athleticism is is crazy when you're up yeah. close. To I mean, gymnasts. she's like. She is LeBron James times a thousand. Right, right. Like in her sport, right. you know, just physically what she's able to do. I, I, she's like a superhero. Yeah. I mean, it's really, really incredible. Yeah, amazing. I can't wait for that. Uh, thank you, uh, as as always, for, for taking some time to share with us. And we'll look forward to all these projects. All right, man. Thank you. Take care. All right, we got a good one coming next week from Steven that he's uh, been working on. It's a deep look at Brandon Staley, uh, the new head coach of the Los Angeles Chargers. Another article about Staley, just what the yeah. internet needed. Yeah, <laughs> yeah no, he's been written about a lot, but uh, you know that in itself is fascinating, right? Here's a guy that uh, managed to create the arch- archetype of the defensive genius. Uh, we haven't really seen that in a while. And uh, he's already, I mean, I think what what we're finding as Stephen started digging into this is that a lot of what he's doing is already becoming influential. Uh, it's already stuff that people are copying, but Stephen is sort of zeroing in on what makes Staley special. Uh, what, what sets him apart? Why he's had this meteoric rise. I mean, he was coaching in D3, was it five years ago now? Uh, I mean, it's not that long ago in, yeah. in, a, in a coaching career. Um, so this guy re- clearly has it, right? Like he has something that is, is you know, Vic Fangio hired him and then Sean McVay hired him. Uh, like these are smart football minds who said, wait, this guy is doing something that no one else uh, has figured out. And Steven is trying to decode that as best he can. Uh, so we're hoping to talk about that next week. That that article's in the works, and uh, Coach Vass is gonna is yeah, gonna join it. And he's apparently been studying Fangio's defense, so I think he's like he's way more knowledgeable on it than I am. I'll say, oh that. yeah, he's a genius. But yeah. what I'll say is like most of the the stuff that's been written about uh, Staley has been focused on like first and second down, really, like how he manages to defend the run while still like allocating numbers to the pass. And I'm gonna more focus on the third down stuff, which I think is like really what makes him will make him special. If he ends up being what 
he it seems destined to become. I don't know if it's going to hold up, but it, I'm going to write about why I think it will hold up. And I think he will like at least have some staying power. Right. Also, uh, we've written a ton about uh, the Legion of Boom era Seattle team and how influential that defense was. And, you know, now with the benefit of hindsight, we can look back and say, well, it was really hard to replicate. And why was it hard to replicate? Because you couldn't get the personnel in there, right? Like it was really teams were trying to put guys in the Earl Thomas spot and the, and there was only one Earl Thomas, uh, you know, nobody else could really do that. Uh, whereas it, it feels like Staley has created something that's more replicable and can be done with a wider array of talent. You don't need to have the specific chess pieces. You can, you can make it work a variety of ways. Uh, so I'm, Really excited to have that discussion and dig in on that. Um, Where did Earl Thomas go? <laughs> away? I don't know. That's yeah, such a, what the hell happened? That is the weirdest story. He got, he got in a fight with a teammate and then he was gone. That was it. Which it, never, it, famously, it, never happens. Yeah, but also, like, no one seems to care that he just has disappeared. Like, I don't. Know. I mean, I'm not going to spend too much time on it because I don't know. But it, it's kind of weird that, like. Training camp fights happen all the time, and he just disappeared from the league after that. Yeah, it's definitely an odd thing. And, like, there was the whole thing, the TMZ thing that offseason. I don't know. Get, we don't need to yeah. get into that. Yeah, I'm not going to get into that. <laughs> but, like, it's a weird situation. Oh, uh, yeah. But I wish he was back in the league because he's, like, he's one of the most fun players to watch. Like, Which right. it's going to set me off on another tangent. Let me Let me go off on this real quick. I posed a question on Twitter the other night. Uh, who's your five favorite quarterbacks to watch on film? And I got like, like good responses. And then you get the typical responses where people are like, Oh, Cam Newton, uh, Phillip rivers. This is recency bias. Why? Where's John Elway and Joe Montana. When I say film, I mean all 22 and none of you guys were watching Joe Montana and John Elway, all 22 or Fran Tarkington was a thing I got like, stop. And you don't even watch like the highlights. On no one is watching Fran talking in highlights. I'm sorry, you're lying to yourself. Unless you're like 50. That's my that's my tangent. I'm sorry. I'm gonna go on a quest now and try to find all 22 of Joe Montana. So so we can see what that looks like. Prove you wrong. It's probably boring as hell. <laughs> that's recency bias. Uh, all right, I think that's all we got for this week. We will talk to you next week. Thanks for joining us. Take care. The counter. An NFL podcast from USA Today Sports.